0: Imperfectionism sounds like a bad thing, and we certainly don't mean tolerating second quality results. What we do mean is accepting ambiguity and accepting that we won't have perfect knowledge before we need to make strategic moves. And what we're going to talk about today is how companies and nonprofits can make a series of small moves that help them build knowledge of the uncertain world that they're operating in.
1: For McKinsey & Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Charles Kahn discussing the central theme of the recent book he's co-authored, titled The Imperfectionists, Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times. Charles is an investor, environmentalist, and entrepreneur. He's co-founder of Monograph, a venture firm, and was previously CEO of the Rhodes Trust in Oxford. He's also board chair of Patagonia, and sits on the Nature Conservancy European Council. Charles, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us today.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. It's great to be here.
1: And I'd also like to welcome Charles's co-author, Rob McLean. Rob is a director of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, Australia's largest philanthropic foundation. He's also a trustee of the Nature Conservancy in Australia and Asia, and the former dean of the Australian Graduate School of Management, based in Sydney. Rob, thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure, Sean. And before we begin, I should just note that in addition to authoring The Imperfectionists, Charles and Rob, who are both also McKinsey alumni, co authored the best selling book, Bulletproof Problem Solving. In fact, some of our listeners may remember that Rob joined us all the way back in July 2019 to discuss that book on episode 19 of our podcast. If you haven't listened to that discussion, we'll link to it in the show notes along with a link to where you can find out more about their new book, The Imperfectionists. Okay, Charles, let's kick this one off with a question for you. Why'd you write this book and why is it titled The Imperfectionists?
0: Thanks so much, Sean. This is a book about how to develop strategies in the world that we live in today, which is a world that feels very topsy-turvy with both economic dislocation and lots of other different types of dislocation. And during that kind of setting, setting strategic direction, whether for nonprofits or for profits can be really difficult. And what we're seeing in the organizations that we work with is people either being frozen, paralyzed, because they're waiting for some kind of equilibrium or stasis to reemerge, or they get nervous and they tend to do some kind of leap before they look move, whether it's an acquisition or some other um, jerky move. And What we are trying to do with this book is to lay out a different path. And that different path, which we've called imperfectionism, is a path that is fundamentally about stepping into risk and being confident stepping into risk by using a set of six mindsets, which we bucket under the broad heading of imperfectionism. Imperfectionism sounds like a bad thing, um, and we certainly don't mean uh, tolerating second quality results. What we do mean is accepting ambiguity and accepting that we won't have perfect knowledge before we need to make strategic moves. And what we're going to talk about today is how companies and nonprofits can make a series of small moves that help them build knowledge of the uncertain world that they're operating in. Slowly add capabilities, assets, and other forms of advantage so that they can essentially bootstrap themselves into strategic position rather than, as, as I mentioned earlier, making bold leaps that don't work or being frozen in some kind of stasis. So that's what we're, that's what we're here to talk
1: about. So you've already written a best-selling book in Bulletproof Problem Solving. So how does the imperfectionists build on or differ from that prior effort?
0: Sure, Bulletproof Problem Solving is a, is a tools book. It gives an approach to problem solving that we, both learned and helped develop when we worked in McKinsey together. And that book is um, a terrific step-by-step approach to, to problem solving in general, and based on the scientific method. The Imperfectionist is more a book about strategy, how you actually employ fluid and dynamic problem solving to solving real organizational problems. And so the, the first book is a, is a tool set book. This is a mindset book, a book about how we uh, employ that tool set in real life by the mindsets we bring to uh, our companies
2: and our nonprofits. Rob, do you want to add anything? I'd also add that some feedback we got from Bulletproof Problem Solving was uh, they loved the, the way we were tackling uncertainty, but by the time our book was out, we were into COVID and and it was very clear uh, that the guideposts for strategy just weren't there. And so we we decided to focus very squarely. On, on problem solving and strategy under uncertainty.
1: And uh, that's the emphasis of this book. Thank you both. That, that's really interesting. Are you saying that the world is changing so quickly that we may need to rethink some of the conventional approaches that we've taken to strategy and that many of us may have learned in business school?
0: Well, let me, let me say a couple more things. And that is, there are conventional approaches to strategy. And so there's uh, schools of strategy that are based in industry structure and conduct that flows from structure, or schools of strategic development which are based in core capabilities. We're not saying those things are wrong, but what we are saying is in a world where things are changing very quickly and fundamentally, those can yield either incomplete or misleading results. The kind of uncertainty that we face today really is twofold. One is the one that we all uh, see when we read the newspaper, which is the economic uncertainty we have external shocks like the war in Ukraine, but there's a much more fundamental kind of uncertainty that we also face right now. And that's the uncertainty of very rapid technological change. In that environment of rapid technological change, where we have the impact of artificial intelligence, automation, programmable biology, and other disruptions, what we're seeing is the dissolution of, or the, or the softening of industry boundaries and what it means to be a competitor in a particular industry. We're also seeing the rise of super competitors like Apple, Amazon, and Google. Those super competitors can operate across many industry spaces and the overall context is one in which the disruption in your uh, particular business or in your nonprofit space is just as likely to come from outside as it is from an, an established rival that you know already. And that's one of the reasons why this dual kind of uncertainty makes it that much harder to develop strategies using the conventional approach.
1: Okay, that makes sense. But does the speed and the fundamentally disruptive nature of changes that organizations are grappling with right now mean that organizations not only need to change the way they formulate and implement their strategies, but also increasing the cadence at which they run their strategy processes?
0: Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things it means is the way that companies and many nonprofits do strategic planning, you know, these annual cycles. Fortunately, people don't no longer prepare 100-page documents uh, that get put in the bottom of a file drawer. But even that existing um, annual approach to strategy development really isn't at the speed that we're operating today. Um, the In in the world of big data, artificial intelligence, and the other disruptive technologies that I described, we need to be doing strategy much more real time. Some people call it Stractix, which is this combination of strategy and tactics. Not sure we love that, but I, I do think that strategy needs to be more dynamic, guided by audacious questions at the top level, but also actualized by people working much closer to the front line.
1: Okay. Stractix, that's a new word. I have to admit, it might not exactly roll off the tongue, but in all seriousness, do we need a new word for this new kind of approach to strategy?
0: Yeah. I I think strategy is still the right word because we're still looking into the future as best we can. We're still being guided by an aspiration for what we want our company to be, right? That this is the audacious question. So we still have objectives. I think it's how we pursue our objectives, rather than having a plan that we imagine looks like a a game of chess or linear programming, we have to accept that the way we progress will be more like rugby, a series of forward moves, of backward moves, of sideways moves, and accepting, and and this is where the term imperfection comes from, that a number of the moves we make will fail, and actually being okay with that, and making sure that the way our company is set up, we don't punish teams for failure especially where those failures are, are are modest in terms of the total outlay and are reversible. And those are two really important concepts for imperfectionists um, to
1: remember. Got it. So how do you tell people that you're not going to hold it against them if they fail? How do you bake that into an organization's performance management approach? Because ultimately, people still respond to incentives and many folks are strongly incentivized to succeed. So how do you reframe what you might call a modest failure into being perceived as more of a success?
0: There's only one answer to that question, which is you need to do it. Um, And the way you do it, you know, and and this is just true, right? Because you can tell people that you're not going to punish them for making small mistakes, but they'll never believe you. What you need to do is to celebrate teams that make sensible, calculated moves, including moves that don't work. And you need to celebrate those teams and you need to compensate them and progress them the same way you do with teams that happen to be successful.
1: That's great. Thank you. On the podcast, we've covered a number of different topics, including the importance of long-term vision, long-term capitalism, even attracting long-term investors. And we've also discussed the dangers of incrementalism and how it can lead executives and teams to simply not aim high enough. So if one takes your recommended approach of making a series of smaller or more agile moves. How do you square that with the need for a bold and long-term focus?
0: Sure. One of my jobs is um, working as chair of Patagonia, and I have you know the, the, the great honor of working with Yvon Chouinard over a long period of time. You, you'd find very few companies, and now in our 50th year at Patagonia, that have been more unwavering in what our top-level mission is. Right? So that's that doesn't change. How we execute that mission changes all the time. And if you ask Melinda, um, Yvonne's wife, she'll say, we reinvent the company every five years. And so our, our vision is on a horizon that's um, everlasting. And our way of delivering that is one that has to alter and change with the environment in which we live. Yvonne says, you can do perfect scientific planning of how you move a company forward. And by the time you've done that, someone else will have beaten you to the market. It's a much better thing to take a step forward, assess how that's gone, and either take another step forward or step back. It's a faster process. And you, you know we spoke about this together ahead of time. Is imperfectionism fast enough? Well, it's certainly faster
2: than making a giant acquisition and then spending years digging out from underneath. That. And it's also faster than the risk aversion that we see in so many companies. Waiting for certainty, um, and and for the move to have a hundred percent probability attached to it. Yeah,
0: you need to have a big enough bite. Um, and you know, Agile's something we were all excited about. And you're right that often it leads you to aim too low. I think if you were to look at uh, some of our favorite imperfectionists like Patagonia or Amazon, you wouldn't argue that they're aiming too low, right? right. And. While you can, you can think of a staircase as an incremental approach to getting someplace, as long as the horizon where the staircase is going to is audacious enough, we think you avoid the incrementalism that is an obvious potential pitfall. Good question, though.
1: So earlier you described the difference between your first book, Bulletproof Problem Solving, which is focused on decision-making tools, and The Imperfectionists, which is focused on strategic mindsets. You write about six mindsets in the book, and so now let's turn to them, starting with the first one, being ever curious.
0: So it starts with an audacious question or a long-term vision, and the mindsets that we believe are important are first and foremost, curiosity, and that sounds simple and obvious, but it's surprising how many management teams forget to ask the question, why? and act as if the framework that they grew up in is the framework that's necessarily correct for the
1: view ahead. So Rob, can you give us an example of the kind of question that would qualify as audacious? Edward Landon is daughter daughter
2: Jennifer. When Jennifer was three years old and her father was taking a picture of her, uh, she said, can I see the photograph, daddy? It turned out that they were in in, uh, Santa Fe on vacation in 1943, And that question then led Edward Land to go for a walk around the town and think about uh, the question his daughter had put. It turns out that his patent attorney was also on vacation in Santa Fe at that time, and he went and saw him after walking around for about an hour and said, I know how to make an instant camera. Um, And that that question led to the extraordinary innovation of the the Polaroid um, instant camera.
1: That's great. I think we'd all like to still have that audacity and curiosity of youth as we grow older. Do you have any advice on how to cultivate a culture and an environment that would actually encourage and nurture coming up with and acting on these kinds of questions?
2: We've tried to tease apart what it means to unleash curiosity because, you know, curiosity can uh, can cover many things, and the examples we've built up Break into three categories. One is um, being in the flow with time and space, asking audacious questions like the one of Jennifer Land, but also paying attention to things like novelty, gestation, and safety. And we're all familiar with uh, the situation of uh, that's just being told someone being told that's a stupid question. That's the kind of thing that puts an end to uh, to curiosity. Uh, but we've we've. Um, Come away feeling that we've we've got a, a powerful structure here uh, for thinking about how you unleash curiosity should you choose in your organisation. If I take an example of Nespresso, Nestle decided that they wanted to explore the potential for coffee be, be, uh, beside the you know very familiar, Bialetti and the um, instant coffee, and they employed a rocket, a Swiss rocket engineer, Eric Favre and gave him time and resources and budget. But he also had curiosity, and he saw lines waiting outside the uh, the cafe near the Piazza Nirvana in Rome, so it clearly uh, indicated that there was good coffee to be had there. So he went in, and he, and he saw what was going on with the barista who was pumping the lever on this old Piston Espresso machine, and he wondered what on earth that was what was going on. And that led him to discover that the secret was, was pulling air uh, into, the, uh, into the coffee. He went home, went back to his lab, and in a short period of time, was able to come up with uh, the formula for Nespresso with 20% um, oxygen in the system. But it was curiosity and also being in the flow of time and space uh, that saw that, um, that innovation.
1: Okay, so being in the flow, quite literally, in the coffee example you just gave there, asking audacious questions and paying attention to what's new or novel, what's the next mindset in your book?
2: The next mindset we talk about is the dragonfly eye. We, we love the dragonfly with its two very large compound eyes that have some 30,000 lenses. Some of our listeners will be familiar with, with the work of Philip Tetlock, who talks about superforecasters who use multiple lenses. So we've, we've taken that expression uh, from Tetlock and Gardner of the dragonfly eye to think about how you change lenses, how you widen the aperture, and how you bring multiple lenses to a situation. Invisalign came about because um, a, a Stanford MBA student or, or two Stanford MBA students, one of whom was Zia Chisti, was going through the process of having his teeth straightened with metal braces, but he noticed that when the metal braces were out, the clear plastic retainer was also uh, acting to move the teeth. And he thought, you know, his, he, he was putting himself in the role of being a customer. He put the customer lens on in thinking about this uh, this issue. He and, and uh, his co-founder, Kelsey Wirth, contacted all of the orthodontists in the Bay Area to see whether they'd like to collaborate and do some trials on what you could do with clear retainers. None of them returned his phone calls, but he, he persisted um, and, uh, and we have this extraordinary innovation that's come uh, from what we would call the dragonfly eye of taking, taking on another lens.
0: It wasn't a dentist who dreamed it up, it was a it was kid at business school.
1: Indeed, and, and just on that point, a business school student really has very little to lose in a situation like that. They're operating from a place of curiosity and freedom that's probably really different from most executives on management teams where they're expected to produce consistent results year after year. I know we touched on this earlier, but can you say a little more about creating a culture that supports and maybe even celebrates noble failure? Is there anything else that you've seen in the companies that you've worked with where upfront they were able to say to their people, we're gonna celebrate both successes and failures as long as they're helping us advance toward our broader strategy.
0: Yeah, a big part of it is really not thinking of strategy as a separate thing from operations. And we often, you know, we, we, we stovepipe or chimney different functions in, in companies, and it's a mistake. Everyone in your company should be a strategist. You've got to have your audacious questions be set from on high, but the more we can push actual strategy development into people who are working in front lines, the better. At Patagonia, we've recently introduced provisions, which is a food business. We've also introduced workwear, which is, you know, literally clothes the people wear to work in dirty and dangerous uh, businesses. Both of those are incredibly uncertain. Um, we don't know if they're going to work or not. We meet frequently. And we praise the team when they uh, make forward progress, and we encourage the team when something doesn't work, right? And you know the way you do that is n- not to meet, you know, strateg- strategically every six months and operationally every week, but to have every week's operation meeting also be a strategy meeting at the front line.
2: I think the other thing we uh, I'd add is that you know we get very grooved in the way we look at businesses, and you know if we're in software, you know. It, very, very frequently, that you'll say, "Oh, this is a SaaS business, and and therefore, uh, or or you know, we're, we're a platform business that's got increasing returns to scales." And what we're saying is, stop and think, and, and and just think about some other ways that you might view the business and test them, and and not be as grooved um,
1: as we often get to be, uh, because
2: that's so often the the path to insight.
1: So if you take this imperfectionist approach who's responsible for setting the audacious goal is it the CEO or an innovation leader or is there a way to harness these kinds of ideas from the wider organization how have you seen it work best you
0: know the way we've seen it work the best Sean is when you you know instead of having a single leader who's this sort of knight on a horse off by herself or himself is to really think about you know and and you know this is the modern way anyway but very flat management teams that meet frequently and where there's lots of ideation that's bubbling up from below. So it, for, for us, it always feels like a combination of planning. Our aspiration is to grow and be in new businesses and serendipity, which is, oh, you know, and imagine Andy Jassy who was sitting there with a set of tools that had been internally developed um, and thinking, huh, I wonder, you know, and this is the the birth of cloud, of cloud computing. I wonder if that could be useful as a business, right? And that's the serendipity of being awake and aware of multiple, of seeing things through a different lens, right? A lot of times there's a, there's a diamond on the beach and we don't see it, right? And that's the serendipity that that's the non-planning element.
1: Thank you. So do you have any advice for how executives should bring these kinds of ideas to their organization? For example, How do you manage the expectations of your internal stakeholders? How do you get people excited about this new approach when there's really a decent chance of failure in the short term for many of them?
0: People love experimentation and your people have fantastic ideas and they often just don't feel listened to. And, you know, I gave these examples before of, you know, uh, Patagonia being in food or Patagonia being in workwear. A lot of those ideas come from below and they come from being willing being willing to experiment. There's nothing more boring than being told to stay within your lane. So, you know, obviously it's, it's easier said than done because you do need to change incentive structures so that people aren't penalized for working on the side. Google's famous for having 20% of people's time available for new projects. I think, you know, inside the company, people often call it 120% time because they really don't get the time, but um, it, that's the right instinct, which is to give people, you know, and Rob, Rob said it both around curiosity, time and space to be in the flow of ideas, and then to reward people when those ideas lead to seeing things through different perspectives and generating new ideas for expansion.
1: Awesome. So the flip side to this internal incentive structure is what you're doing with external stakeholders, specifically investors. How do you get investors to come along for the ride when they're looking for quarterly results? How do you communicate this new approach to them so that they actually value it accordingly?
0: I think it's a constant tension and I don't think, I don't think there's a snappy answer to that one. I think there's always going to be a tension with um, external investors and other audiences. The best advice I can give on that front is be transparent, tell the truth. I think people try and hide the ball and I think it's very reasonable to say we're going to put 20% of our investment into uh, crowdsourcing new ideas or 10% of our investment is going to go into moonshot ideas. And to be honest with your investors
1: about what you're doing. That's great. Okay. We've covered curiosity and the dragonfly eye and Rob, why don't you take us through the next mindset on generating new data and experimenting? Thanks, Sean.
2: So, most of us, in when we were learning statistics in college, uh, learned something called Bayes' rule, and what what Bayes' rule told you was that you start off with your your prior beliefs, with a prior probability, you collected data and evidence, and then you updated your beliefs. We we feel that this is a terribly important way to go about things when you're facing high levels of um, of, un- of uncertainty. So we think this. Um, Insight can come from creating new data, which may be things like A-B testing or pilot offers. It can also come from new tools to give insight from data or finding uh, finding natural experiments. We don't see anywhere near the level of experimenting that we would like to see, particularly under un- uncertainty, and, and we take our hats off uh, to the people who take those risks um, and get the insight and can move forward uh, you know, particularly in other, when others are thinking, uh, we just need to wait a little while before, before things
1: settle down. Thank you. And how do you access that new data? The fifth mindset in your book is about tapping into collective intelligence. Can you tell us a little more about that?
2: Whenever we talk about collective intelligence, we often used to think that we our job was to get the smartest people in the room. But we we like what Bill Joy, who was the founder of Sun Microsystems, had to say. It's better to create an ecology that gets all the world's smartest people toiling in your garden for your own goals. If you rely on your own employers, you'll never solve all of your customer needs. You can say, well, how on earth do I do that? Well, there are several ways. There's, there's ways to crowdsource expertise uh, you know, through collaborative or competitive uh, means. There's also things that we would call c- collective wisdom. And increasingly, we're seeing AI-enabled AI uh, versions of collective intelligence, AI straight up and AI uh, with man and um, man and machine. And an example that uh, Charles and I are familiar with uh, is one of in the Nature Conservancy that's concerned about protecting uh, fish stocks, but we don't really know what's on the back of fishing boats. And so what uh, the Nature Conservancy did was turn to Kaggle and opened up a competition to identify tuna species on the back of fishing boats. And some 2,293 entries came in uh, with machine learning solutions with something like 90 to 95% accuracy. So Nature Conservancy, which is a science-based organization and in the field, bolted on a capability uh, by reaching out to the collective intelligence of a very, very large community, um, in machine learning, and now has trials on fishing boats in Indonesia uh, prior to rolling out this uh, technology. But this is an opportunity. We feel uh, we feel that R and D budgets could be dramatically um, outsourced. Uh, we th- think there's enormous potential for prizes uh, to be used to, for technical breakthroughs. We see examples of that in um, in a number of areas, uh, but we see very significant opportunities. For more, making greater use of collective intelligence.
1: That sounds really exciting. Thank you. So, before we move on to the final mindset, can you give us an example of an organization that, in your view, has really embraced this mindset of strategic imperfectionism?
0: Yeah. So, let me speak briefly here, and we'll just use one example. Um, we've described Amazon as an imperfectionist, and one of the new businesses that they started entering back in 2007, which is consumer financial services. What's interesting there is instead of using their giant balance sheet to acquire a big bank or financial institution, they actually used relatively humble steps. So they had something called pay with Amazon. They invested in a little company called bill me later. Uh, they acquired a company called text pay me. They hired a team from Go, which included a person that later uh, ran Amazon's uh, financial services business. They launched a business called Local Register that was in, in uh, competition with Square. And what's really interesting is three out of those four or five early steps look like they failed. Um, they were shut down, um, they were sold off or someone else bought them. But while that was going on, they were building their internal com- competence. They were basically learning what the game was in financial services. They were hiring in uh, capabilities and they were acquiring um, IP and other valuable assets that eventually led them to launch Amazon Pay and more recently uh, their own credit card services. And so from very humble steps, brick by brick, rather than by a leap before they look acquisition, they position themselves as one of the major players in consumer financial services. So this is the, the essence of what it means to be an imperfectionist. There's no uh, five forces strategic framework that guides this kind of a perspective of entering a new business. When we think about this way of stepping into risk, we like to um, break it into two big buckets, acquiring information capabilities or competitive position by using low consequence, high learning moves, by blocking and tackling to establish position and occasionally by making big bets. Or um, the other way you can be successful at stepping into risk is to find clever ways to pass off risk to other people who can bear it more. You know, a famous example is Wimbledon, which didn't um, go out of business during the pandemic because they'd actually purchased pandemic insurance, believe it or not, or using various forms of hedging. Uh, Sometimes that can actually mean financial futures contracts, but often means other types of hedging or kinds of risk-reducing partnerships. So that's really, in essence, what we think of as imperfection.
1: Okay. So now we've covered being curious the dragonfly eye, relentless experimentation, and collective intelligence. Charles, can you please take us through the last mindset?
0: Okay. So the last mindset we call show and tell. And the whole idea here is to be much more compelling about how you build support for these ideas. And Sean, I hope this comes back to some of the questions about how do you build both internal and external support. An example of uh, Rob's when he was working with the Nature Conservancy in Australia. And uh, they were meeting with a big donor, uh, a bank donor. And uh, these, these guys had cleverly lined up 17 10-liter plastic buckets against the back wall on a credenza. Uh, the people from the bank came in and said, what's that about? And we said, we'll get to that in a minute. And what the pitch was about in this case was, could they raise funding for creating uh, shellfish reefs in uh, estuaries, Marine estuaries are one of the biggest places where pollution has become a problem because you get runoff of fertilizer and pollutants, and that creates um, pollution inside estuaries. Well it turns out each oyster in an oyster reef filters 17 buckets a day, 170 liters a day and cleans that water. And you know, you could have had a PowerPoint slide that said, each oyster does 170 liters a day. This was a better approach. And um, what we try to do is whenever we are building support is to use this kind of mechanism. Sometimes it's a visual, sometimes it's storytelling, and sometimes it's speaking to people's values. Go ahead, Sean.
1: Well, I have to admit I'm a big fan of oysters, but maybe now a little less so knowing what they're, that they're filtering so much water every day. You described your really compelling visual there.
0: Sometimes we do demonstrations. A a famous example in the book is uh, what some of our our, um, colleagues in McKinsey actually staged a bank robbery when they were working with the Federal Reserve Reserve Bank uh, of San Francisco, which was a way of demonstrating that their concerns about security were real. Um, Don't try that one at home. And it it often means speaking to people's values, not just speaking uh,
1: analytically. Awesome. Well, that, that's really taking show and tell to the next level. So Rob, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to add before we wrap up?
2: It's really worth taking a, a moment and, and saying, are, are we asking these audacious questions that would, would change strategy? Um, are we too grooved in the lenses we use for looking at problems? Have we thought about how prizes and crowdsourced input and how we could uh, have others You know, particularly in areas like open source software, um, working working for us, have have we really come to grips with? When we say be like Reverend Bayes, we don't see anywhere near uh, enough effort going into thinking about probabilities um, and to taking action based on probabilities. We're, We're we're acting too much like certainty is there, and then at the end of the day. Can you can we really put our view our strategy as staircase building? Can we can we see like Amazon how these steps are progressing, you know, towards significant goals over time with with setbacks um, included? So there's almost a diagnostic of of your processes and the way in which you deal with uncertainty and the way in which you approach approach strategy and the high levels of uncertainty. And, and that's what we, uh, we've we set out with the mindsets and, and uh, sections in each chapter uh, that allow you to work your way through
1: where you stand. Charles, Rob, this was great. Really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Thank you again. Our pleasure.
0: It's been a great pleasure.
1: And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. As I said at the beginning, we've included links in the show notes to both of Rob and Charles's books, along with a link to our previous episode, on Bulletproof Problem Solving. As always, we'd welcome your feedback and ideas for future podcasts. All you need to do is email us at ITSR at and that stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on any podcast player, with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback and look forward to having you keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to subscribe, all you need to do is follow our weekly series on any podcast player, where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page that's available at McKinsey.com slash ITSR, and there you can easily browse our prior podcasts across six major themes, as well as access written transcripts of all of those conversations. And finally, if you'd like to receive our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up for email alerts at mckinsey.com or follow us on X at MCKstrategy strategy, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the strategy room.